and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 76, recorded on October 21st, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you from the heart of the old school Silicon Valley at the Intel campus in Santa Clara, California, live from MeetBSD. We have a heck of a news lineup this week, some big releases. Yeah, well, let's start with Ubuntu 18.10. But is it really a big release or is it a kind of minor point release for them because it's not an LTS? I think it depends on the kind of user that you are. In a weird way, even though this isn't an LTS release, there's some nice improvements in here for the server version. 18.10 ships with OpenStack Rocky, which we just recently covered on TechSnap. And it includes the latest version of Kubernetes, version 1.12, which brings some increased security and scalability by automating the provision of clusters, which is sweet and uh, is being pitched as a way to dynamically respond to your workload. And I mention all of that because those are two really big ticket items in the server world right now, and 1810 ships with them by default. So if you're looking from the server user perspective, it's a pretty solid update. If you're looking from the desktop perspective, 1810 introduces GNOME 3.30, which includes upstream performance patches and some vendor-applied performance patches by Canonical directly, which make it really fly. It's the fastest GNOME desktop I've ever used. And it's got that new Yaru community contribute theme, which looks really sharp on high DPI displays. I was looking at that theme side by side with the old one earlier today, and I couldn't really decide whether I liked it more, really. In some sense, it's kind of more modern and a bit flatter. But then it's a bit garish, I find, the kind of bright orange and stuff. It was always orange before, but um, I don't know, I'm not really sold on it, to be honest. I think that's a fair criticism. It is a bit in your face, and I could totally see why someone like yourself wouldn't be a huge fan of it. But in the modern era of 4K screens and whatnot, you kind of have to redo some of these themes anyways to make them look good. I think it looks pretty sharp, but I was looking on it on a really high-end Dell display, which was designed to really pop, and so the combination of the two together really made an impression on me. It almost is distracting, though, in some ways, in its brightness. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt about it, really. But it's funny, if you look at this announcement post from Canonical, it's very much kind of spreading the love across the various releases that 1810 makes up from the cloud and server stuff and the desktop that talk about improved gaming performance. They're very much trying to hedge their bets, aren't they, and not concentrate too much on one aspect of it. See, now that I kind of disagree with. I think this is them more focused than ever. It's three succinct categories, cloud, desktop, and snaps. That's really it. Instead of a mobile and a TV and a netbook edition, it really is, this is the canonical portfolio of solutions now, cloud, desktop, and snaps. I suppose that is true, but it, it feels like there was more emphasis on the desktop early on with Ubuntu. And then it kind of swung the other way to be, you know, the desktop seemed to be in maintenance mode for quite a long time. And now it's kind of swung back into the middle. Ah, uh, yeah. It's getting more attention than it did for a while, you mean? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I suppose you're right, ultimately, though, that they've kind of slimmed it down to these three categories, which kind of look nice to investors, don't they? Yeah, I think investors definitely have something to do with this. I think that's what the whole restructure has been about since they announced it what is it, more than a year ago now, when they dropped Unity 8 and restructured the company, in particular, one of their goals was to make desktop development more sustainable. 
Switching to GNOME Shell meant they were no longer creating their own desktop environment. They didn't have to have all of those developers and engineers and artists on staff to produce that and maintain it, update it, and add new features. They could work with upstream code. And now we're seeing the third release since that restructure, and their GNOME implementation is pretty good. And they've got some of their own performance patches that they found. They've submitted those upstream as well, so GNOME Shell overall is getting better, and that helps all the distributions using GNOME Shell. And for myself, if I were a GNOME user, I would be making this update. I would be upgrading to 1810. I would have already done it. I'm, I'm personally sticking on 1804. But if I was a GNOME Shell user or a big Linux gamer, I would be making this update. Because not only do you get kernel 418, but there's updates to Mesa and Xorg to significantly improve game performance. So you combine that with the improved GNOME 3.30 performance, and that's a great desktop for GNOME Shell enthusiasts or Linux gamers. Well, I'm sitting here looking at Zubuntu 16.04, so I don't think there's much chance of me upgrading, I'm afraid. <laughs> wow, man. You know what? In a way, you should just ride that thing out to the end. I mean, that is the way to go at this point. You're so locked in, you might as well just take it all the way up to the red line. Well, that's what I did with uh, 14.04, so I probably will do. But speaking of the flavors then, with Zubuntu, not much there of interest and w- with the other flavors as well, nothing of great note, I don't think, apart from Lubuntu, which has made the switch to LXQ by default now. And it feels like the right time to do it because having looked at it, I was really impressed. It's solid. I could really use it, I think. Well, I kind of want to know more about that. What is it specifically about LXQ or that desktop that's pushing those XFCE feels for you? Well, for a start off, you've got one panel at the bottom. I know XFC doesn't have that by default, certainly Ubuntu, but it's easy enough to move the panel to the bottom. That's what I do with a start menu that's searchable but simple. And it's modern at the same time, and that's what I like about it. It's light, but it's modern. It's not stuck on GTK2 and you know making the slow transition. It's based on Qt5. It's modern technologies. It can work on a really low-end system. I had it running on a Core 2 Duo, and it was fine but then it'll absolutely fly on you know, an i5 or i7. So it's kind of almost leapfrogged Mate as far as I'm concerned. I know WinPress won't like to hear that, but it feels just right. I mean, I've been following the progress of it, and there's been little bugs here and there. And I haven't tested it extensively, so I'm sure that there's probably little annoyances here and there, but it seems to be the right time. I think it was a good decision to do this now, one release after the LTS, for Ubuntu. So they've got plenty of time now before 2004 when I think it's going to be absolutely rock solid. And the bottom line is Ubuntu is the flavor to watch. Well, speaking of that handsome Martin Wimpress, I was chatting with him on Linux Unplugged last week, and he mentioned one of the really nice things about the 1810 development cycle is the work that went into getting a lot of the hardware working, the new drivers and whatnot. That does make its way back to 1804, the LTS release as a hardware enablement stack, and that will likely ship as 18.04.2. And so those of us that are sticking with the LTS, actually, if we just wait a little bit, do eventually get some of these hardware goodies. I think that's a really cool cycle. And just something I wanted to point out that maybe non-Ubuntu users weren't aware of is that's kind of a nice perk of the LTS cycle on the Ubuntu side. Yeah, I'm in the planning stages of building a desktop at the moment. And if I do go for the ninth gen i5 or i7, I think I'm going to have to go newer than 18.04. So it'll probably force me into this at least until the um, 0.2 release comes out for 18.04. So 
yeah, I may well end up using this sooner than I think. And last but not least on the 1810 flavor side, if you happen to be lucky to find yourself getting one of those GPD Pocket 2 devices, there has been specific work in Ubuntu Mate to make those devices sing with Linux. So go check that out, because now those devices ship with Windows by default, and you got to take care of that. Man, it really makes me want one, even though I just there's nothing I would do with it apart from just play with it. I, know. I really want one. I actually was talking to Wimpy about it, and... Uh, it sounds like it may be possible to turn that thing into a mobile podcast studio. Oh, yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. But I just kind of don't have that desire. I never leave the house. <laughs> so. I know. It sounds like punishment, really, because then you have to go out and see people, and you have to go out and be in the environment and you know get a sunburn. It's just no good. Yeah, exactly. Well, before we move off Ubuntu, we should quickly mention the statistics site that they've put up now. We got some of these statistics uh, a couple of months ago, and there was a promise to have more detail before the 1810 cycle was over. And right at the last minute, I think it was Will Cook who posted this. So we've got some more detail. I mean, I don't think there's anything hugely surprising from these stats. And the one thing that everyone wanted, absolute numbers of users, well, we're not getting that by the looks of things. I'll tell you what else I was hoping we'd see that isn't in there is a breakdown of which versions of Ubuntu are still the most active. 14.04, 16.04, etc., etc. There is a couple of interesting things in here, though. Um, turns out 80% of people do clean installs, which I think is interesting versus an upgrade. And 99% uh, of people surveyed, which was 66% of the installs, use X11. So the Wayland future is still far, far away. Well, that's because it's not by default. You have to kind of enable that afterwards, don't you? So that's, I don't know where that 1% came from, really. <laughs> from from those of us trying it, I think, which is actually pretty <laughs> yeah, maybe. surprising. Now, there's also all other kinds of information here, like most popular screen sizes, the types of disk layouts and partition types. So uh, we would recommend just go read through it because they've got some great visuals too. And you can find a link at linuxactionnews.com slash 76. Yeah, and it's also worth mentioning that these are updated dynamically as more and more people install, so they're not necessarily going to be the same stats today as they are in a couple of weeks. But another huge release this week is Elementary OS 5.0 Juno. This is a big release for a few reasons. Probably the number one reason being that they take their time between releases, and Elementary OS has a release model that's not based on date, but it's based on open bugs. And after they burn through the open bugs, then they generate another release, which tends to trigger more bugs, and they burn through those, they release a release candidate, which then triggers more bugs, they burn down all of those bugs, and then they have a release. What that means for an end user is you generally have a pretty polished product by the time the version ships. You don't really have to wait around for the updates. And there's a lot in this new release. They've jumped to version 5 with that, and it's to represent how far they've come as a development platform, but also as a distribution they have one of the larger chunks of market shares when you step outside Ubuntu proper. And they've become a well-respected distribution over the last couple of years and sort of shaken free that Mac clone stigma for the most part. And people recognize it now as just a well-engineered, refined user experience. And it really comes together in Juno. But how can we possibly talk about all the features here? There's a post on Medium from Cassidy and it is, well, on Medium, it says a 31-minute read. It's 7,000 words, I think. <laughs> and it took me a fair while to get through it all. And there's just so much refinement, so many new features. 
I just don't know which one to even start with. It really is worth a look, this post. Even if you're never going to run elementary OS in a thousand years, it's worth a look. I don't think any other distro does it this well. And it's it's a massive summary with lots of really well-done pictures. And the thing I take away from it is this App Center is a big deal. There's a lot of other stuff in here, development platform stuff, UI changes, performance improvements, the code app gets a lot of love. But the App Center with its pay-what-you-want model, and now this new, you can try out an app, which, what a brilliant idea, try before you buy. Who would have ever thought of that? You can try out an app, and then if you like it, when it does future updates down the road, say two, three weeks, you're still actively using the app, and you go to do an update, it'll say, hey, would you like to maybe kick this guy or gal two bucks? Because now could be the time to do it. I mean, you could you could just skip that. But I like this system where you can try out the application and then later on you can be like, hey, yeah, you know what? I will kick him 10, 15 bucks. Here you go. And then it does the update. Yeah, and you can go in at any time and do that. If you download it for free and get some value out of it, then you can just go. It's quite subtle, actually. Right at the bottom of the um, the page on the App Center for each application, you just click the little button and then you can chuck them a few bucks, which I think it's nice that it's subtle um, they would have probably got some criticism if they'd made it more front and center. But it's nice that that's an option now. And it's good to see that someone on the Linux desktop is trying to make some money out of it because a lot of work goes in. And what they're trying to do is have this coherent experience, which, to be honest, is not for me. I don't really like you know that, the way it all works. I am the stick in the mud who's using XFCE, as I've said many, many times. But... They have a vision, and they want to fund that. And I think that it's refreshing that they're not kind of ashamed of wanting to do that. I think you can understand a lot of their actions when you look at it in the frame of they're attempting to do the things that nobody else has done. Because a lot of the other things that have been attempted haven't been successful on a large scale. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense to keep repeating the same mistakes. So with elementary, they're attempting to do something a little different And I really think the Linux desktop ecosystem needs that. Well, last week we talked about Redis and how the company who makes that, Redis Labs, had made a change to the license which hadn't gone down very well in the community. And this week, it's the turn of MongoDB. Yeah, it appears MongoDB is a bit miffed that some cloud providers, especially in Asia, are taking its open source code and then offering a hosted commercial version of the database and then not contributing back to MongoDB in any way. As you probably know, MongoDB has traditionally been licensed under the AGPL version 3. And they released a statement about a change in license to the server-side public license. They write, MongoDB was previously licensed under the GNU AGPL version 3, which meant companies who wanted to run MongoDB as a publicly available service had to open source their software or obtain a commercial license from MongoDB. The company goes on to explain, however... MongoDB's popularity has led some organizations to test the boundaries of the AGPL version 3. So they've gotten a little upset about this, just like Redis essentially was. So they're switching to the SSPL, which stands for Server-Side Public License. And it explicitly states that anybody who wants to offer a MongoDB-type service, or really any other software that uses this license, needs to either get a commercial license or open-source the service to give it back to the community. That's the essence of the license that they've switched to. Now, once again, this is not an OSI-compliant license, so it is technically not going to be open source from now on. And that includes patched old versions as well, which they're changing the license to. 
MongoDB have said that they have reached out to the OSI and are waiting for their approval of this license. But, and, uh, you know, asterisk, I'm not a lawyer and all that, but I can't see it happening because this license, the server-side public license, mandates that you have to release all of the code that's running your service. And people have kind of taken that to the extreme of, well, what if your service is running on AWS? Does that mean that they have to open source all of AWS? Well, that's not happening, obviously. And so it might mean that people just can't use MongoDB anymore. See, I I actually think it's even worse than that. And there's a real problem here that the MongoDB CTO and co-founder points out in a statement he released. It reads, the market is increasingly consuming software as a service, creating an incredible opportunity to foster a new wave of great open source server-side software. Unfortunately, once an open source project becomes interesting, it is too easy for a cloud vendor who have not developed the software to capture all of the value but contribute nothing back to the community. So they're making the case that this is a huge problem that open source software is going to face. As they get more and more popular and they provide a server service, a provider comes along, packages it up as a, as a service, starts selling a monthly rate for it, maybe even forks it to a degree and starts contributing their own um, features and requirements to it and never contributes any of the improvements back to the project upstream. But to your point, the genie is already out of the bottle. There's no going back. If, if MongoDB makes a big change here, these vendors have already been disrespectful to the open source spirit and license, so they're not going to change their behavior. They'll maintain a fork of it before any of these license changes go into effect, and they'll just continue to run the old version as long as they can make a profit from it. To me, it seems like there's no going back at this point. Well, except that it's going to be fairly difficult to maintain that fork because any security fixes for the older versions are going to be released under this same uh, SSPL, which means that, again, like we talked about last time with Redis, any fixes would have to be kind of clean room. Although, if we're talking about providers in China that don't really care about the license or maybe don't understand it properly, then maybe they're just going to plow on regardless and just merge these fixes and maintain it themselves. That seems more likely to me. That's what I suspect is going to happen for a large portion of the offenders. And then for the others, maybe future companies, they just won't use MongoDB. And so the project sort of loses on both fronts. Yeah, I mean, it's not like MongoDB is the only database out there, right? There's plenty to choose from. It's a really hard spot for the project. And I don't know, it's something I'm going to think about more and I think deserves further discussion because MongoDB and Redis are not the only projects that are going to face this issue. Well, I've discussed this with Chris Lamb from Debian and he said that he has no intention of forking MongoDB like he has with Redis. And he said it remains to be seen whether this license turns out to violate the Debian free software guidelines, and that if it does, then it's not going to be able to be in Debian and the downstream distros as well, so that's going to affect Ubuntu. And from his tone, I think that he strongly suspects that. He didn't say it outright, but I think he suspects that it's not going to conform to the uh, Debian free software guidelines. So it's potentially going to be a very bad thing for MongoDB in that it may just fade into obscurity. If it's not available in distros, then 
Who's going to use it? It's all those Docker users, Joe, of course. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Google finds itself in a bit of hot water, and the way they're going to get out of it, apparently, is by making money. Well, that's a sign of a good business, isn't it? If you're uh, in trouble, (laughs) find a way to make some money to fix it. Yeah, so this goes back to July when the European Commission fined Google $5 billion for breaking EU antitrust laws with regards Android and how they'd been treating the OEMs. And although Google said they would appeal it and are in the process of appealing it, they've also decided to do something about it just in case, kind of hedge their bets. And so now they've pretty much complied by the looks of things. Just about, we'll get back to that making money thing again. I don't know if the EU is going to kind of stand for that. But I think ultimately it's kind of worked, hasn't it? Yeah, this might do the trick. And there's so many echoes of Microsoft and Internet Explorer here. It is giving me some nostalgia. So everyone listening to this show knows how this works. If you want an officially blessed version of Android from Google with all of the goodies, you have to ship certain applications as part of the OEM agreement with Google. And that right there is the rub. Forcing the bundling of certain applications like the Chrome browser and the Google search app is exactly the kind of behavior that got Microsoft in trouble back in the day and just got Google in trouble now. So this means that devices in the region, in the European economic area, can be sold with Gmail, Google Maps, and YouTube, Google Play, and so on, but no Google search app in Chrome. Instead, manufacturers can just include their own search engines and web browsers, or they can license those for around 40-ish U.S. greenbacks from Google. Yeah, and up until now, any manufacturer who wanted to ship Android with all the Google stuff weren't allowed by that license agreement to ship other devices with forks of Android. And that was a huge sticking point, whereas now they're going to be able to. But where I think this may fall down for Google, and again, I'm not a lawyer, is if you are a manufacturer and you are willing to play the game and ship all of the stuff that Google wants and have it all placed exactly where you want, then it looks like you'd be able to get away with that for free. Whereas if you make any changes, that's when you're going to have to start paying on a per-device basis, and that is governed by the pixel density, which is quite a clever way for Google to um, tie the amount to the value of the device because pixel density generally scales with the (laughs) retail price. So it's pretty clever of them, but I just can't help but feel that that may not go down well with the European Commission. Well, they sent a letter to the European Commission trying to justify all of this. And in there, there's a very interesting admission. See, they they claim that the bundling of the Google Search app and Chrome is how they essentially finance the development of Android. Here's what they write. Since the pre-installation of Google Search and Chrome together with our other apps helped us fund the development and free distribution of Android, we will introduce a new paid licensing agreement for smartphones and tablets shipped to the EEA, Android will remain free and open source. So the case they're making to the commission is, look, by taking these apps out, we can't fund the development of Android anymore, so we have to charge a little bit of money. But the implicit statement is, all that monitoring that we get from Google Search and Chrome is how we, re- how we really generate revenue. <laughs> That's what I read as the implicit statement there. Well, yeah. And another key aspect of this is that if those OEMs don't play ball with Google, they're going to miss out on their slice of that search revenue. And so even if they're shipping Chrome and Search, if they're not doing things exactly how Google wants, 
then they're just going to be cut off from what I imagine is a very serious chunk of the revenue that comes from selling these devices. Because as we know, they basically lost leaders at this point. Almost all of the OEMs selling Android devices don't actually make money from them. It's only this money afterwards that they're getting from the search revenue that makes it even worth bothering with. It's good to have that big lever. It's good to be the king, and Google's sitting there with that big lever, and they've come up with a really clever solution to this by licensing it and essentially leaning on the business dependency that these OEMs have with Google. Yeah, but again, I'm not convinced that the European Commission are going to let them get away with it. It might be a long, protracted battle again, but maybe that's what Google's plan is here, just keep moving the goalposts and just keep one step ahead of them. Well, I guess we can all look forward to another riveting Google legal battle. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's end with an update, I suppose, to this Linux code of conduct situation. There was a lot of controversy when this change happened and when the code of conduct was brought in from both sides. Some people saying that it was far too much and some people saying it wasn't enough. But I think the main problem was that there wasn't really that much clarity at the time. It had been kind of rushed out and kind of cobbled together without much community involvement or any community involvement really. But now we've got a little bit more clarity because Greg has posted an interpretation document and a mediator has been appointed. Yeah, it turns out Greg KH was working in private in some super secret chat room or mailing list with kernel maintainers and developers on addressing their feedback and trying to come up with solutions to essentially all of the contentious issues around the code of conduct, but doing so in private so that way they could come to some consensus before they took all of this out. And like you just mentioned, they appointed that conflict mediator. So she will be the initial contact point for mediation, and she's the legal director for the Software Freedom Law Center. So in the place before, it was the technical advisory board. She sort of steps in between there. And then the other thing, just to note, we don't have to read the whole thing. We can link it in the show notes if you're interested. But there is a part in here I like in the part of the document, the interpretation document, that describes how to read the code of conduct. There's a line in here that says, in the end, be kind to each other. It's really what the end goal is for everybody. We know everyone is human and will fail at times. But the primary goal for all of us should be to work toward amicable resolutions of problems. Enforcements of the code of conduct will be the last resort option. And I guess also worth mentioning, they also clarified where you're a representative of the kernel community or not, and it's much more clear. And they essentially say, if you are misbehaving in some other forum, it's their rules, their code of conduct that are applicable to you, not ours, with the exception of, as they put it, extreme circumstances. Now, I've seen a bit of backlash to this. I was hoping that this was going to kind of put the fire out, but it seems to have just poured oil on it, really, in that the people who were kind of screaming about um, social justice warriors and all that, this has not appeased them. This has just somehow made it worse for them. Hmm. But when I was reading through it myself, I just thought, well, this all looks very standard corporate kind of um, policy that normally wouldn't be out in the open, but... Uh, it, it doesn't seem that much different from a big organization. Well, any organization of about the size of the um, Linux kernel community. You know, it's funny you say that, uh, because I've been down here at MeetBSD, and this hasn't come up at all. And this just hasn't been on the radar. So I read the story, I read through the mailing list post by Greg and a couple of follow-ups, and I read the interpretation document. And my takeaway was, 
Okay. Well, that kind of clears up some of the concerns I had. All right. I'm feeling much better. This seems very reasonable. And I walked away from it. And I haven't been on any threads about it or any comment section because I've been here at Meet BSD. And so I'm coming into this with zero um, internet outrage impressions. I haven't even been on Twitter. So it's I came into it clean thinking this seems like it's a good way to address this. It seems like Greg's really got a handle on the situation. Uh, and it seems like it solved a lot of the up in the air questions we had. I had no idea there was any outrage, but of course there is. I should have known. Yeah, you're kind of like that dog in the this is fine cartoon, <laughs> I think. Just completely blissfully unaware of all the fire around you. I'm just hanging out with the BSD guys, and uh, they're just pretty chill in general, really. So I just thought everything was cool. Yeah, well, it, we'll have to see, because this is fairly recent news. We'll have to see over this week whether or not uh, these initial comments and you know discussion that I've seen pan out to be kind of the majority opinion. But um, I'm really hoping not. I think we just need to draw a line under this. Yes, okay, it is the, the kind of corporatization, I suppose, of Linux kernel development, but it, this has been coming for a long time. We're talking about millions of dollars here. Yeah, it's it's been that already. It's already been that. We just haven't really seen it outwardly. This is uh, the formalization of, of what is a bureaucracy around one of the world's largest open source projects. And um, I think it proves that this is a living document that can be amended and changed as it suits the project. They've just demonstrated that, and they did so in an organized fashion with buy-off. Uh, by many members of the project now. So it's not just a handful, it's many members of the project. So I think this, if nothing, should at least appease people in the fact that it shows that they can make changes, that this is a living document. And that's good to see too. Oh man, you do love a bit of wishful thinking, don't you? (laughs) I think it's the BSD guys rubbing off on me because they're wishful they're eventually going to take over the world. (laughs) I want to give a quick shout out to IX Systems. They put together a heck of an event at Meet BSD California. And it has been really cool to spend the week at the Intel campus inside Intel and going in their auditorium and also getting to hang out in their cafeteria and walk around on their campus. The BSD people have some cool stuff in the works and they're facing some major changes in the project. So you stay tuned to the Linux Action News Show because there may be some news from our open source cousins down the road. You can get every single episode when you go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get the new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback on the stories or other things you'd like to see us cover. And you can always catch us every single Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.